Hello and welcome to the Comeback Nation podcast. Today I'm joined by five, yes, five amazing women across different fields who are coming to talk about the negative stereotypes that Black women can face in the workplace and in life. And not just that, but how to overcome them and how to push past them and manage them so they don't negatively affect your well-being. And we're going to be hearing from these five women's personal experiences. And they're going to be giving us some great advice on how to navigate this world as a Black woman. So Black women, listen up. It's going to be a fantastic session today. And we are going to kick off now. Okay, so welcome back, everyone. Uh, As I mentioned, we're going to be joined today by five women across different fields, and I want them to just introduce themselves before we get started. So, Neka. Hi, Louise, and thanks for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this session and chatting with the other great guests you've got on. So, I'm Chief Operating Officer at a wealth management firm in the city in London. And I'm also co-founder of the recently launched startup Ninja Pro. So I wear a couple of hats at the moment. Oh, brilliant. Thanks, Neka. Beth. Thanks, Louise. Really, really happy to be here today to join in to the conversation. I'm Elizabeth and I currently work with professional services company as an AI tech lead. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. Francis. Hi. And again, really looking forward to being part of this really, really necessary conversation. I'm, I guess, what is described as a typical slasher. So I don't have one thing. I do something slash something slash something else. (laughs) I'm a writer slash editor of a publication called reconnectafrica.com slash the chief executive of an HR and training consultancy focused on Africa called Interims for Development. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Francis. Emma. Hi, Louise. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the discussions we're going to have. I, well, I don't wear several hats, but I wear a couple. So (laughs) I currently am head of culture and well-being at Mental Health First Aid England, which is a social enterprise. And our mission is to change the mental health of the nation by training one in 10 people in mental health awareness. But I also am the founder of the Inclusion Agilist, which is basically consultation around culture, well-being and diversity and inclusion. My background has predominantly been in corporate social responsibility, diversity and inclusion, well-being um, and culture. And, And by culture, I mean workplace culture. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Emma. And last but not least, Avril. Thank you, Louise, for inviting me on the show. And I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation. In terms of my background, I've worked in mental health for over 10 years now. I'm currently a counselling psychologist and also trained as a massage therapist. So my interests are very much in mind and body. And I'm also running a private practice at soulmindbody.space. Oh, fantastic. It's so wonderful to be amongst you women. You know, this is a really important topic and I wanted us to talk about it because it's important to shed light on real life experiences of black women in the workplace. And also, I think that social support is one of the keys to overcoming challenges, you know, research shows this. And negative stereotypes and racism is a form of, it can be a form of trauma. I think it's so important to talk about it and not hold it in and to be a form of support to other people that might be experiencing it. And also to shed a light on what it is for those that maybe don't understand it or haven't experienced it before. And I thought, what better way to 
shed light on this topic and illuminate it and to bring together some black women across different fields. We have Liz, who is from technology and consulting. We've also got Francis, who is an entrepreneur, author and executive coach. We have Amma and Avril from the mental health space and organizational culture space and Neka from uh, operational corporate space and who's also recently become an entrepreneur too. So we've pretty much covered all the bases and I just love to hear from you all around what your memories are of experiencing negative stereotypes at work. What do you think the stereotype was behind it and how did you experience that incident? I'm happy to share um, my very first experience actually. So over just about 10 years ago actually, I started my career in consulting and it was with one of the big firms that's a global firm. And finished our training four weeks in, and I got my first client project, which was based in Edinburgh. So I took the first flight out of London Heathrow and got to Edinburgh first thing in the morning, probably about 8 a.m., and met my senior manager on the engagement. And the first thing he said to me was, Oh, wow, I didn't know you'd be black. (laughs) On the phone, he sounded very white. And I thought, Great. That's a positive start to my career being the very first job I had. And it came as a surprise that he was so, I guess, okay with saying that in a very public space and didn't really think twice about it. But in some ways, it didn't come as a surprise either because I had seen um, experiences of negative stereotypes when I was at school and also at university. In that moment, I guess I felt slightly disappointed but also almost more driven to demonstrate that his perception of what it means to be black could be I guess morphed and changed and influenced so I just sort of put it aside at the time I didn't challenge back and say x one said and he made multiple other comments saying you know I thought all black people talked like rasta mouse and I wow. I'd say at those points you know this your view of what a black person is, is clearly ill-informed. You clearly don't know enough black people or any at all um, to have these um, views. Um, But for me personally, I think I just took it as one of those many hurdles and just continued to press on and worked hard enough to try and almost prove him wrong. Mm. Um, So that was my approach. But that in itself can be a burden, right? Not having Definitely. to work in a way that you're trying to prove someone wrong is an yeah. additional burden on you, right? And exactly. a recent racism at work survey report showed that 70% of ethnic minority workers have experienced racial harassment at work in the last five years. That's a huge amount. And that is an additional burden that people of of colour and minorities are having to face in the workplace. And it's exacerbated when you're working with people who are not familiar with with Black people or don't have much experience with people of colour. Did you feel like it became a burden for you? I mean, how did you then go on to experience that? I know you said you worked hard and you tried to prove them wrong. Yeah, I think it's definitely a burden and it's a burden that we all carry day in, day out, that sometimes is so embedded in the way we live our lives that we don't actually notice that we're carrying an additional burden. And this is very much linked to the idea of white privilege. Mm. And actually, 
it's the idea of not having to carry this burden, which we are now also used to carrying. But mm. I think that's what colleagues and other people say. But, you know, white privilege, I don't have privilege. I was in a socioeconomically challenged environment when I grew up and so on. I'm not privileged. But actually, the idea of having to carry this huge burden every day um, is quite significant. So for me, it's the standard story in terms of, you know, your parents tell you you have to work twice as hard to achieve what you what others might achieve who aren't black. And so it's definitely a burden that I I carry, but I try not to spend too much time thinking about it. I think about, okay, how do I improve myself? How am I driving to reach my potential? And that's more of the motivator as opposed to now proving others wrong. Wow. I mean, for the rest of you, what do you think of that? And what are some of your memories of experiencing negative stereotypes at work? Well, it's, um, it's so interesting because as you listen to other people's stories, and I think that's one of the many values of this kind of conversation, is that it unlocks your own, that perhaps you've totally squirreled away and even forgotten existed. And I'm reminded I met a former boss of mine years later. He set up a firm and he had an opening party and I was invited. And as we got chatting and obviously the alcohol had helped him loosen his tongue, he said <laughs> to me, do you know, I had to fight really hard to hire you. Now, he hired me as European HR manager, and at the time he was HR director. And the firm was an American firm, and the CEO was a Texan. So my boss had gone through the interview process, had decided I was the best candidate for the role, and then sort of had to go for the usual sort of just get checked out by the CEO kind of thing, which is just literally meant to be a rubber stamp. And I was offered the role, but I never knew what this guy told me much later was that the CEO kept telling him, are you really sure? Are you really, really sure she's the right person? Are you really sure? I mean, it was like, and he was, you know, at this point, neither of us had anything to lose. And he said, you know, the guy was like really pressuring me to make a different decision. And it was because he knew I could do the job better than the other candidates and he wanted to work with me, that he, you know, persisted. And I got on, I was blissfully unaware of all of this. I probably didn't have any more than one or two encounters with the CEO anyway, because, you know, he was way up there in the lofty role. But it's, it's interesting that, and later on, I remember thinking as I thought about this, how did that actually make me feel? And I, I'm still not sure. I mean, part of me is just like appalled, but then listening to, you know, Necker's story now, it's like, well, at least he didn't say it to my face. That would have been interesting. Yeah. I mean, this has roots in a negative stereotype which I strongly dislike. And that is that black people are just not as competent. Mm. And from that, you, you now have to prove yourself, as Neko was saying. I mean, has anyone else encountered that type of stereotype, Amma, Liz or Avril? Yeah, well, actually, I was just thinking of what to share. And it took me back to when I was studying, actually, A-level. And I remember I had a politics teacher who basically told me that I should think of a different degree to choose because I wanted to do law. And for some reason, he just kept pushing me against it and he had no valid reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Safe to say I did go on and do law and then I went on to do a master's. And often when I, I think I was pushed more so to do that because I wanted to prove that I could do that and show him and prove him wrong. And I used to remember years after that, I was like, if I ever came across this said teacher, I'd really let him know what I thought about him and that day when he told me I couldn't do it (laughs) because I've you know I'm sure we've all through our families we've always been told as like I said to work 10 times as hard you know because we are always at the back foot because we are black 
and, and you know and then there is also this whole double jeopardy because you're black and you're a woman yeah you know, you, you have to do everything quadruple the amount compared to your other counterpart so for me when I was listening to Neca's story and also to Francis it took me back to that first point and I think you know we are talking obviously about our careers but what was more relevant to me was that it starts so much so much more before way way before that and then just re-emphasizes itself again and again and again and if you don't have that strong support unit and that family unit to help you get through it and to actually counter whatever you've been experiencing that's if you even are open enough to share it you will literally become the self-fulfilling prophecy that that is being told that you are because of these microaggressions. I've had similar microaggressions of, oh, you don't, because I wasn't born in this country. So when I share that story, even before I share that story, I, I get that that same thing, Necker, of, oh, you, you you know, you're quite articulate. And then when I say, oh, I wasn't born here, they, yeah, they're even 10 times more shocked. The story I wanted to share, which actually was quite recent, and actually I was quite shocked that it happened in a sense, because the person that told me, I thought was someone who was, a little bit more inclusive than the rest of the usual people that you would have ask you those questions. But I remember one day at work, and this was, I remember the clearest day, it was a Friday. My boss at the time sat me down on a Friday afternoon and decided to have a conversation about feedback. And I was like, okay, great. Fine, what do you want to feedback? And what she said was, I noticed that you are spending more time sitting with your, you know, with more black colleagues than non-black colleagues <laughs> which at this point in my head I was like is this a joke <laughs> like literally I was laughing in my head and I was like and it completely blew me away I was like her and I literally did the her what, what are you talking about to which she went on to, and she was absolutely justified in her head in her reason to tell me this that I should not be sitting with my black colleagues because it doesn't look good because I sit in the people team wow. and from an, and an inclusion perspective the optics don't look good. And we worked together in another, a previous job in a previous company. So to defend what she said, she then added on and continued to say, you weren't like this in <laughs> the other company we worked in. And I was just literally like, okay. And I just got up and walked out of the room. And I remember that weekend as clear as day because I was sitting at home talking to my husband and I was like, oh, let me tell you this. And as I continued to tell him the story, he was like, are you going to go to HR? And I was like, dude, she is HR. So (laughs) that is HR. What is, what is, what is there left for me to do? But I I did go back and talk to her on Monday and I said to her, if it was any other person, because obviously I'd felt that we had built a rapport, which was actually mutually respectful rapport. And I said, if it was any other person, this would have been a tribunal moment. The moment I said Mm -hmm. to her, she cannot think that she is fine to sit there and tell me who I cannot sit with based on the color of my skin and the color of those people's skin and then I went on to talk to her about the culture of that organization and I said for her to make the comparison with another company what she should have been worried about is well why is Amma doing that if she's not done that before and to that point why does Amma feel if she Amma is the inclusive person that she is which I am and I think I am and I'm you know I would sit with other people why do I feel more comfortable than in this situation and in this environment to do more than the other it shouldn't be a case of well you shouldn't be doing it because you are in this role and that and the other because there were very much other people sitting in cliques I said to her are you telling all the other white people not to sit together yeah, I don't I think just, so I was just about I, to say I don't think yeah. people actually put themselves in other people's shoes so they mm-hmm. can say oh yes it's fine if there's I don't know a black history month event so there's obviously a, more people 
who are black at an event and even though they might not be fully comfortable with it that's okay but to see it as a daily affair where um, black <laughs> people congregate together I can't speak to say this applies to everyone but I do think that some people feel very intimidated by and therefore that intimidation results in comments like um, what this lady said to Amma because yeah. I think the other thing that um, Amma mentioned there that was important is actually you can't rely especially in large businesses where they think, oh, we've got a huge HR department, you know, we're all set for on the inclusion and diversity front. But it doesn't lie solely with HR. Yes, they do have the responsibility, but the responsibility is actually very much lies with everyone across the organization and the leadership. So expecting someone in HR because they have the HR badge to think more inclusively is just misleading. And unfortunately, lots of businesses have that view. You know what they say, don't you? You know, one black person is exotic, two is a riot. So <laughs> you need to be careful not to but, congregate but it's, because you I scare mean, people. It is ridiculous. And the fact, I mean, and not only was she HR, she was very senior. So for me, it was very much a case of I'm not taking this. And it's coming back to the whole thing about privilege, right? Because in her mind, she was still adamant that she was right because her reasoning was because she's not very clued up to noticing things mm. because she noticed it it was an issue and I was just like that's your blind spot right there that is the bigger issue the fact that you don't notice things on a daily basis and for you to then pick something up like this and you know for me I was very comfortable telling her how I thought about the situation that it was not acceptable but I know there are many many more other people that feel again the coming back to the psychological safety piece I'm a point in my career where if I am in an organization that does not truly want to be inclusive does not truly kind of see me for me I don't I don't want to be there and I'm I'm lucky enough to make the decision to go elsewhere and I don't really care about when I say I don't really care I'm not really phased about the repercussions of what does that look like because I always think about it strategically of how I exit but I know that there's other of our black colleagues that are dealing with psychological safety in these situations and they don't feel that they have those options so they just stay and they get stuck in it yeah and it impacts their their emotional well-being because they they feel that they have no other way and on top of that they you know if they're getting the kind of feedback you got Emma they're not able to go to the spaces where they find maybe social support or safety because they're being told you shouldn't be sitting with all the the black people so it's it's a it's a tricky situation and it's a quite a dangerous thing to say actually because that is where most people probably find freedom from microaggressions and freedom from the negative stereotypes that bombard them daily in the workplace um, yet they're being told to avoid that and stay away from it it's very interesting I mean just touching upon what Francis said I think he said one person is exotic and two people <laughs> two plus a equals riot. a riot yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> what seems to lie behind that is this a negative stereotype yeah. number two we're on right now that black people are dangerous or yeah aggressive and I'm sure that everyone here has probably dealt with the you're being aggressive accusation right when it's really assertiveness it seems to be the negative stereotype that really plagues black women unfairly and stops us from being able to be assertive be strong make the decisions that are best for us and speak up 
and also be honest. I'm just curious to know how that has affected all of you ladies. And Avril, you know, if you have any perspective on this from a psychology perspective, please do feel free to, to pitch in. Yeah, I think it has been really interesting hearing people's experiences and I can relate to a lot of them. I think kind of particularly what you were just saying now, Emma, about about then lots of black people together being seen as a threat or not being seen as something to aspire to that being around black people is a bad thing in terms of kind of progressing just seems like such a such a dangerous way of of looking at a situation and I think what Francis said was was really accurate of the sense of, of feeling quite threatened when there is more than one of us and it kind of reminded me of an experience I had at work Where I work at the moment, I'm the only black member of staff, well, black therapist, I should say, who they've hired. Like no one can remember a time where where there was an ethnic therapist. And so it's been quite interesting kind of entering that environment and seeing how that's been received. And a little while back, we had a training event where they were talking about kind of violence against women. And one of the topics that came up was violence kind of within Muslim communities and within black communities. And it felt quite difficult being in in an all-white space and having a white person come in and talk about these topics. At the time as well, within... So basically, the way that my organisation works, we also kind of have other services that work with the counselling team. And in one of those services, there was an Asian colleague who also was in the training with me. And, And at the end of the event, we kind of almost kind of looked at each other and and had a bit of a discussion or a debrief as to how we kind of felt. But it was very interesting to see the eyes in the room kind of look at us, then (laughs) having this conversation afterwards, almost like this very kind of suspicious, fearful thing of what are they, what are they saying? And I think that it was, it was just very interesting because even kind of a few days later, my manager said to me, and I think she has quite a lot of knowledge actually around kind of history, but it's, 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 I think it's interesting even when, when those people have the history, still the unconscious biases and the, mm. that kind of, that very kind of unconscious feeling of threat is still there. So, it, it, so I think that's felt quite difficult as well, almost of kind of encountering people who have the knowledge, but still are acting in ways that are very unhelpful. But she kind of came and, and kind of said to me, oh yes, like on retrospect, it felt quite difficult to have that type of training and to have both of you in the room. And I wonder how that felt with you both being in the room but that kind of almost being an afterthought and I know that that's kind of quite a progression compared to some of our other experiences <laughs> that people have in companies for them to even kind of start to think about those things but I just thought it was very interesting to experience that that yeah. sense of of other white members of staff feeling quite threatened when <laughs> it, it went from just yeah. being me to yeah to us having a discussion. Sorry, I'm just, I, Avril, that's so true. I'm just reminded, I must have been about three or four years, maybe about two, three years ago, actually, I went to, um, I suppose it was a bit of a pitch, really, for a DNI organisation that's um, white-led and all their kind of facilitators are all sort of white, middle-class women. And I went to sort of go and do this pitch because they, they were supposedly trying to quote diversify interestingly enough and I didn't get the I didn't get the gig to do stuff with them because I wasn't quite right you know and I just think the irony is like (laughs) 
telling yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Like, nah, it's a bit too black to come talking about black <laughs> issues. <laughs> just, you know, really, it's like sometimes just, just stop it already. Just own it, right? Just own oh, up and yeah. say, we just want to do it our way. We want to talk safely for us about what inclusion means. And we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh. But yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, I think, and it it becomes very frustrating that sense of it feels very, it feels very superficial as well. I think that sense of of people being like, oh, yes, we are being very, very inclusive and we do want to think about this, but let's think about it from the safety of where we sit. Let's think Mm -hmm. about it with other people that make us feel safe as well. And I think that kind of goes back to that bind that sometimes people find themselves when when they aren't in situations as you said Emma where you have the opportunity to say actually this workplace isn't working for me so I'm going to go somewhere else I think with people who who don't have that freedom um and I feel like I've been I've been lucky in that as well in being able to do that but I think for people who don't and even for myself previously like this sense of feeling okay what should I do should I be this kind of quiet, complicit, polite member of staff to make it to make people feel safe. Should mm. I not speak up about these things that are frustrating me and, and aren't helpful for me in for fear of being kind of stereotyped as the angry black woman or being mm. stereotyped yeah, exactly. in that aggressive way. And you also kind of feel the sense of responsibility as well of sometimes being the first black face or being the only black face and thinking, okay, well, if they experience me in this way, will it help other mm. people to be hired as well? Mm. And I think that mm. that other layer then makes it more complicated because, because you're kind of stuck because you feel like, okay, well, if I speak up, then I'm highlighting these things. But mm. if it gets ignored, then I become the angry person and they say, oh, look, the black person created all this trouble. We're not hiring someone <laughs> like that again. But, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. then if, if you're silent, then nothing changes. And then they still might not hire someone black again. Because <laughs> so. they didn't contribute enough to the conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You lead, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and I can, I can really relate to that because I would say that at the onset of my career, and I just used to bottle everything in because there was really no one to share some of those frustrations with. And actually, there were quite a few of our black women in my intake back then, but I didn't feel empowered to talk about it. And I know that for the first two years of my career, I felt really frustrated. And, and I, I grew up in Nigeria, so I had this very thick this Nigerian accent and you know it really just being in a white dominated in a male dominated you know tech community then um really affected my confidence because I just felt that everything about me was wrong and obviously like experienced like different forms of microaggressions and I just you know, was bottling it all in and I became very assertive uh, and uh, people started to label me as disruptive or aggressive. And <laughs> but if I just fast forward to now, I'm a lot more outspoken about my experiences. I have a lot more sponsors and people that look out for me and genuinely feel like the recent events have shone a lot of light on the black narrative and the need to provide a lot of support and sponsorship for black women so right now 
I'm trying to be a lot more positive about how I identify those issues, speak up about them, and also make sure that I'm playing a role in the solution, whether it's with educating people or uh, just talking about it and bringing people to a better level of awareness about how certain actions make me feel whether it's actively looking out for other black women that are just starting out and making sure that they decide to learn from my experience and I'm guiding them. Because looking back to, you know, four to five years ago when I started, I went for a lot. <laughs> it was quite difficult, you know, but it's important to just learn how to take care of yourself, how to mm. ensure that all of those challenges and frustrations don't get to you because it did get to me at some point. But thankful that I transitioned away from that phase into a phase where I feel more empowered to talk about, about it, to address things. Was uh, it interesting I, that you say, Liz, that you felt like everything about you was wrong <laughs> and I love how you put it as well Avril where you said you felt this pressure to be quiet and complicit to make others feel safe I'm just curious if you know Neka, Amma, Francis if you've ever felt that pressure yeah I, I, I think it's really interesting because we've talked about the burden and there are just so many layers to that so first there's potentially being the only one and definitely a minority in most cases then there's being labelled and having to fight against that label, whether it's aggressive, whether it's feisty or you're so sassy. I've had all of those. So you have that. Then you have the burden. And yes, it's a responsibility and a duty, but to actually sort of bring others with you. And to, because it is a responsibility to make sure that you are providing support for other people, other black women or other minorities as well. But that's yet another thing that you have to take mm -hmm. mental effort, emotional effort to address. And there's so many of these things whilst then just doing your day job. Yeah. And on top of that, what you then know is that you're potentially getting paid less than what you should be paid. I don't know if everyone saw the sort of survey in August 2019, the 22nd of August, black women in the US would have had to work all of 2018 and up to August the 22nd, 2019 to basically have the same pay as a white male. And all of those things just add up. And Liz mentioned frustrations. It's not just, you know, one comment here or one, another comment there. It's all these different things that add up and take a huge, um, it's exhausting, I think. It's really, really exhausting. And for me, I think the way I've done it, and I think all of us have said, you know, we've tried to think about how do we react to this? Do we uh, sort of almost camouflage ourselves? to fit in but I personally think that adds an additional level of burden not being who you are not actually being able to bring your culture to the workplace to actually be yourself that's a strain I personally feel I wouldn't be able to to deal with however go deeper onto this topic of the burden and the strain of carrying these microaggressions. I want to actually point a question to Amma and Avril. From your perspective and from your understanding, what are some of the negative effects that working under the burden of these stereotypes and daily microaggressions can have on mental health and physical health as well of Black women? Yeah, I think what Neg said as well, with that constant exhaustion and that burden, but I think also with the microaggressions, I feel like it's, it's about kind of constantly being put in this, in this position where you're feeling under threat, where you're kind of going into fight, flight or freeze mode, where your, your nervous system is constantly kind of being triggered because you feel, you feel threatened by other people around you. You don't feel safe. And 
I think that that then that kind of that can leave us in a state where we're constantly feeling anxious or we're constantly feeling frustrated or angry and that's not going to have a positive impact on on our body and also kind of mentally as well so I think that like what Liz was saying in that sense of kind of of being able to kind of to get support from other people or to to find ways where we can kind of trigger our parasympathetic nervous system so kind of that system being more in charge of allowing us to feel calm allowing us to kind of to reinstate a balance of feeling relaxed within our bodies I think being able to kind of to access that side more and that that might be you know being yourself more allowing yourself to be more yourself in in the in the office environment is important because because then it it takes you out of that threat system that you're constantly and being pulled into by those by those stereotypes and by those demands and how does constantly sort of having that threat system activated manifest into physical and mental health yeah so physically in terms of exhaustion so constantly kind of feeling tense in terms of like your muscles constantly feeling heart being fast you kind of feeling on edge it can impact in terms of your digestive system as well like you're constantly feeling tired means that you want to eat more you might want to kind of seek more comfort it might mean that you're constantly feeling irritable so when you're going home after work you're kind of taking it out on your partner or or family or friends or you're trying to it leaves you in a position where parts of your brain start to shut down as well so it it inhibits you being able to think clearly I think that's why kind of often when we're in those situations where we we either kind of receive racial attack or or a microaggression we often go into freeze mode where you can't think of how to respond or you can't think of what to say because your body has literally gone into this mode where it's trying to protect itself and so your thinking brain just switches off and so you're kind of in this paralyzed sense of being and I think every time you then experience another kind of threat or a microaggression it also taps into these previous traumas that you've had throughout your lifetime in experiencing those and and so you never it feels like this kind of ongoing thing that you never kind of get to resolve because because you're constantly going through it. I want to talk about what organisations can do to support black women. But yes, Emma, please. There's just a couple of points I wanted to touch on. And I have those points. I think if you think about just your day-to-day life, we all go through life with our own stresses. And if you think about it, like we all have our own individual sort of stress containers where if you're putting in just the day-to-day things in life, whether it's work, finances, you know, all the kind of life hacks, as I like to call it, as that builds into your stress container and you have no outlet to release it, it becomes a manifestation of issues, which will probably then end up to some of the physical attributions that Avril has mentioned. You know, you don't have any sleep. Your sleep patterns are, you know, are wrecked. Your your brain is constantly on. You know, you're not eating properly. You are constantly thinking whether, you know, what you're doing is right. And that all leads in turn to exhaustion. So if you think about just a normal kind of stress container with just everyday life happening, when you add those extra layers of burden from that perspective of the trauma that we're facing, because every day you have to wait up you have to cover yourself you know you have to think about you know it's almost like you well, not almost but it's like you wake up you have to cover yourself you have to think oh my god I have to go into this working environment where now I have to pretend to be somebody that I'm not just to have mm-hmm. peace of mind and yeah. you know just to get on with stuff what is someone going to say what is someone going to think how I try to behave all of that constantly every day and then having to then deal with the harassment the microaggressions the, the abuse no matter how small or big it is 
without being able to tell anybody else about it who will do something to change it, mm-hmm. insulate things. And we all know that if you keep things in, whatever happens, it always ends up in a negative form because you've, you've kept it in. You haven't been able to expose it. You haven't been able to let it go. But more so, you haven't felt that you've had justice done in terms of something yeah happening to it yeah. so the more That'd and more frustrating it is yeah. it's, it's, it's beyond frustrating because you're thinking well why what is the point why yeah. should I carry on because nothing's going to get done about it and then irrespective of whether you leave an organization and go on to the next one what you're asking yourself is is this going to be different or to what extent am I going to have to play this game in this organization rather than yeah. oh my god it's a great organization or you're, you're looking you're excited looking forward to not having to deal with that so i think the terms on that's the impact and i think the physical manifestation happens much much later before the mental because you know mental health and physical health are you know they're both connected yeah. but what tends to happen is the and avil correct me if i'm wrong but what happens is that the men, the mental piece is more so impactful in the background and it's early until it gets to the point where you cannot take it anymore does it then manifest into the physical but then there are also sometimes and at some different points where the mental connection the mental issue the mental condition more so does play out physically a lot sooner mm. the key thing is knowing your body well enough to be able to put the intervention in before it becomes too late yeah, yeah. And that sort of intervention is stuff like therapy you know having support groups but then I want to come on to the point as a community, we tend to shy away from those things. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, Louise, if I may, I, I just wanted to come back to your question about, so how do we address this in the workplace? How do we change? There's a really excellent piece in People Management recently by Kelechi Okafo, who does the amazing podcast, if any of you listen to it, Sally HR. And it's, it's just hilarious. And she just does this take on Sally, Sally from HR is this character who is just so outrageously, <laughs> awfully incorrect about everything. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hilarious if you haven't listened, but it's just so true, you know, and it's the sort of, oh, hello, I just wanted to tell you, you know, mm-hmm. you weren't recognized by people because you changed your hair. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But, you know, in her piece, she talks about listening. And I think that, to me, is key. Organisations have to listen. And and sometimes listening is very, very hard. And those of us who do coaching and deal with, you know, having to help people get to a different space from where they start, we know what listening means. It means you're not preparing your response. You're not being defensive. You're really hearing what someone has to say. And I think that's for any organizations that in good faith want to make a difference, they have to listen. I ran a focus group for an organization a few months ago for their black employees. And you know, I gave them the report, uh, unattributed to the individuals, obviously, but it was hard hitting because the things they were saying were not rocket science. But if anyone had chosen to just listen, they would have heard. There's one that always sticks out in my mind where one of them said, you know, we keep getting asked to join in all these social events that they do because we're meant to be a really social company and everyone's encouraged to get together. And the last thing was like sort of going, was it paragliding or camping somewhere? She goes, I don't do those things, right? That's not my idea of social. And nobody sort of asked us, well, what do you guys want to do? you know, as in including everyone's thought process. So it's just little things, these micro, micro exclusions that add up to become this massive mega exclusion. And it's, and the thing it's is, not necessary. You can pay for that. And it sounds small. You know, I don't want to go to 
I don't want to go camping, for instance, or whatever it is that you might not be interested in doing. But you might end up paying for, for that because, as we know, social networks are key to advancing yeah. in an organization. And when you're facing things such as similar to me bias and other forms of biases, it can be very challenging to build that social network for black mm. women. And actually, a recent uh, report from Business in the Community says that 52% of BAME staff feel they have to leave their current company just to progress yeah. their career. And this reminds me of what Emma was saying in that she's not afraid to leave an organization if she doesn't experience that psychological safety. I would love to hear from all of you now on this piece around recognition and reward as a black woman in the workplace. I want to kick off with, with Neka though, and then I'd love to hear from you all on your experiences around that. And Neka, I just want to know, you know, how you've maintained visibility and ensured reward and recognition in your career despite having to face some of these negative stereotypes you spoke about I know you said you work super hard to prove people wrong (laughs) but I just like to hear more about that experience yeah I think firstly it's progressing in your career is definitely not something that you do on your own I know for a fact that I would not have been able to survive because it is survival to be honest without the support of my friends and my family. And I know some people say, oh, you can do it on your own. You're a strong woman, but actually everyone needs support. So that's the first thing that I think has been like critical to having people I can rant with and then say, okay, let's take a step back. So that's the first thing that's been really helpful for me. I think as well, I was, I say lucky, but I was really fortunate to meet someone who was really senior quite early on and I did a lot of work for him and he basically became my sponsor throughout my career and I think that's been really important in terms of providing opportunities. I worked really long hours for him but he always was all thinking about opportunities and platforms that would give me the opportunity to demonstrate my potential and my capabilities and to get recognized because at the end of the day recognition is not something that's as straightforward as you know going to university studying and it's a very meritocratic Mm -hmm take the exam and that's done especially in professional services it's not as clear-cut as output there's a lot about your networks as you were saying who you know who actually has a voice in certain forums so I think that for me was really important and one of the books I read um, well two books I read Lean In quite early on I was having a very challenging project so when the book by Cheryl Sandberg came out in terms of being really strong as a woman and making sure you use your voice when you can. I think that was really important and being able to define yourself and not be defined by other labels that people put put on you. So that was one book. And then the second book that I really liked was Forget a Mentor, Find a Sponsor. Um, I think we spend a lot of time talking about mentoring, but actually sponsorship is even more critical in terms of getting those platforms and the recognition that you deserve so those are just a couple of pointers but hard work is fundamental but you can work really hard but if you're not in the right places at the right time or having the right voices advocating for your career it's somewhat redundant unfortunately have you felt that you've had to work these long hours and work twice as hard for the same recognition or would you say that no it has paid off for you Mm. I think I would probably describe myself as a slight workaholic. So if I look back, I could probably, I should probably have worked less for the recognition or the earlier promotions that I got. However, I think there are comments that sometimes are made like, ooh, 
that's nice that you got promoted. It's great to see, you know, the push for women in senior roles or BAME people getting promoted. So it's quite good timing for you. You know, when those comments come, I can now look back and say, actually, I was the last one in the office consistently. So it's sort of, it's not necessarily right that I should feel that I have that to legitimize my promotions. But for me, I guess it gives me that level of comfort that no, I'm not just a quota. I'm not someone being promoted because companies now want to see senior black women, but actually I did put in the work um, behind it. So it's slightly skewed, but that that's really how I feel about it. And that's a really interesting way to put it. And definitely it's helpful when you're accused of perhaps just fulfilling a quota when you get a promotion, but it's also in a way kind of perpetuating something that's not necessarily helpful to mm. a degree, which is that, you have to work twice as hard to prove you deserve it and to prove that you're you're competent. And so I wonder, are we saying that perhaps black women, you do have to work till, I don't know, midnight or 1am or whatever to, to be seen when perhaps your Caucasian male counterparts aren't doing that and still getting the same level of, of reward? How do we navigate that? What are your thoughts on that, everyone? I think the way I navigated it was just to opt out of the whole game. You know, I I just found corporate life after a certain point, completely stifling. And not just about leaving corporate life, but I also had a vision for myself that I wanted to be able to fulfill and it wasn't going to happen within the framework of another person's business. So I set up my own. And, and I think, a lot, I of think a lot of women have. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of women and a lot of black women have because, and you know, I think it's, it's a natural reaction to really just finding, look, there's no space at this table. No one wants to make space at this table. So I give up. I'm going to just go build my own table, as Tyler Perry used to put it, you know. Mm -hmm. So when you build your own table, you're the boss and people then come to you. And so it's less about you having to prove who you are to them and more about them trying to get your attention. And it takes time and it takes work. But, you know, at the same time, it's not the answer for everybody. But that's, that's certainly for me the route I took. I knew what I wanted to do and I couldn't see a way to do that within the structures that existed. So I think particularly these days with technology, with so many more people doing that, that there is a lot of role models. And, and coming back to resources, when I was trying to sort of make it, I didn't really see any resources for me as a black woman. And what I started doing was actually writing my own resources. So I wrote a book called Everyday Heroes, which was all about interviewing black professionals and getting them to talk about the differences that they've made and how they got to where they got to. And really you know, 16 everyday people really talking about the different professions they're in and how they've had to push through. And similarly, it was why I set up the website that I did, Reconnect Africa, because for me, I needed a platform where we could all share these stories. So it's not just anecdotal, but you actually have a lot of people coming together and sharing a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom. Fascinating. Amma, Avril, Liz, what have you felt you've had to do in order to get the recognition and the reward you deserve? So, so personally, I felt like I had to work twice as hard, if mm. not more than that. And, and I think it was because at that point, you know, that was what I had to do to attract the right attention. I had to not just pick up extra work to go above and beyond. And I also had to develop myself in certain areas where I knew that I had to be better. So for example, I wasn't fantastic with communication or particularly eloquent back then. And I had to really work on that because it was important for me to be in a room and feel that I'm there, not just because I'm black, but because I'm good at my job. 
Mm. And I'm very good at telling the narrative as well. And I also had to learn how to build relationships because, you know, if I attract the right attention, but I don't cultivate the relationship in the right way, then it wouldn't be sustained. So um, I would say the hard work really wasn't just about doing a lot more. It was also about, you know, being self-aware and picking up on those areas where I need to put in extra effort Mm. because those were areas that would basically give me the skills that matter and the skills that would effectively help me sustain anything that I get through the hard work. So we're building a picture here of a black woman who's experiencing discrimination, microaggressions at work. They are in fight or flight mode. They may be having some negative impacts on their physical and mental well-being. They're also being told not to sit with the black people, so they can't necessarily (laughs) find support there. And now they're having to work till, you know, 1am or work extra hard than others in order to just get recognition. It's, it's not looking too great, Avril. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not. And I think also on the flip side of that... I to say they're also being paid less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's ridiculous. But I think also on the flip side of that, it just goes to show like how amazing we are as black women to, to still have all of this nonsense that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis and still to be like doing as well as we are. Like it's, I think that's phenomenal. Mm. And yeah, but it also is very sad. And in terms of like France's work, I think that that's amazing. Like being able to, to hear other people's stories um, really kind of helps you and, and inspires you and gives you the strength. I think it is really difficult when you're fighting constantly against this idea of not being good enough or being less than. I think that that does eat away at you psychologically. And I think there's a reality to it. There's a sense of people kind of questioning your ability. But I think that there's also like, there's a psychological component to it, which I feel like I'm, I've been trying to do the work towards in terms of building my own self-confidence because I think that we do need to sadly sometimes kind of work be the last person in the office as like Neka was saying and Liz was saying and work twice as hard but I think I think also sometimes there's a sense that we feel of of having to do that because because we won't feel good enough I guess an example I, I thought about was a friend telling me that that she kind of spoke to, to a colleague of hers who'd worked in HR for quite a while and he was talking about how we apply for jobs and there was a research paper kind of looking at how when men go for a job then they'll often see a white male goes for a job sorry they'll often like see two things on the job perspective and they'll say oh I'll do that job I can wing the rest of it mm. whereas for a for a woman we would look at a job perspective and we would say oh we need to be able to do nine things out of the 10 of these before we would put ourselves forward and so I feel like there's I feel like there's also a psychological component that that has been created that's deeply unhelpful as well off of the back of of how we kind of view ourselves and I think that needs to that's kind of a thing that needs to be challenged and I think that that can be done as well in terms of kind of having support as other people have said from other people something that's been supremely helpful for me is like connecting with other black therapists who are going through similar experiences and, and drawing strength from each other and knowledge mm. and and learning from each other's experiences and also having building allies at work who 
can be black, brown, white, who I think they're difficult to seek out, but I think that they do exist. So, so just I, to go on into some solutions, Emma, have you got any any perspectives as well? Yeah, no, I was just saying that I agree with what you're saying, Avril, and I think it's what some of the stuff everybody has said, because I think for me, my career has been interesting, and I think I would call my career, I don't know if you guys have heard of the squiggly career it's really interesting but but I would describe my career as that because I've always felt that I have gone through my career not really anchored to something in the sense of I my role as a diversity and inclusion specialist consultant whatever I'd always be in HR but I would never be part of HR I would be very much the individual contributor that comes in and works with different facets of the business. But what I've actually really found and felt throughout my whole career is you're hired into this role as an inclusion person and suddenly everybody in the company will think that, okay, now it's your responsibility to fix mm-hmm. all the issues that are going on and it's, we're not dealing with it. But then you also have you know, your black colleagues thinking that you're here. Yes, you're great. You're going to make a difference. You're going to save everything. You're going to change everything. And it's really, the pressure is ridiculous because you're having it from both sides. And then you're there in the middle because you so much want to make the change and the difference, not just for your, you know, your fellow black people, but just basically anybody that is just struggling Mm. in a culture that is predominantly have white privilege in it. And then when you begin to notice is that people put you in or hire you in those, but when you begin to notice that people have hired you in those positions because it's a tick box exercise or they just want you to follow their agenda and not the agenda that you really want to do, which is make real culture change, you start questioning a lot of things about not just yourself, but actually, well, what is the purpose of anything that you're doing? And that can really impact you if you don't have the support groups and the support networks that Avril and Network and, and Neko have mentioned, or you actually don't know your own worth. And it took me a long time to really value my self-worth, but it also took me a long time to understand, well, not a long time, but in my journey, it, I recognized that to Francis' point, I either stay and play the game or I leave. So I decided, well, actually, if I'm going to stay and play the game, I'm going to try and play it to my advantage. And through doing that, I had to recognize that it was around who I built my relationships with specifically to enable myself to be visible. And the people that I had to build my relationships with had to have influence. And by influence, they had to move and make things happen. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there was just no point in doing that. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that from my career perspective, I'm now, I've got, and it's only probably last sort of maybe three, four years that I decided if I'm in a culture and working in an organization that I don't have that influence and that, and I'm not empowered to do so, then something needs to either move or I move because fundamentally, if you are constantly looking for recognition and reward to be given to you and it's not given to you and you don't find your own worth and self-worth in that and creating your own recognition and reward or ways and pathways to do that you become part of this this piece of the puzzle where you let people dictate Mm. your self-worth and who you are Mm. and nobody should have to go through that yeah i think i learned a very early lesson in the what it takes to shut shut a bully down again like like I think it was Liz that was saying I wasn't born in the UK I came here when I was about I think eight or something and I was at a a local primary school for a year before I started secondary school and there was this boy this and he just loved to call me gorilla and I just used to find it amazing but wow really and and then one day I think I just decided I snapped and I just turned around and I said well at least I'm not ginger so yeah it was a classic case of one marginalized group turning against another you know so (laughs) or ginger people of the world but it was as if suddenly having his own insecurities shut him up he never spoke again to me and I realized that you know 
sometimes you just have to speak up and it's amazing what that might do. It might get you tossed out, but on the other hand, it might just shut them up. And sometimes this, this fear that we have of, of us, you know, wanting to crawl in the corner and be quiet, it doesn't serve us because the people we're trying to be quiet for don't respect quiet. Mm. Frances, I had exactly the same experience in primary school as well. It was hilarious you were saying that because I was just, I mean, hilarious by the fact that it just took me back because yeah. I had a similar situation, but it was with a girl and she was calling me exactly the same thing. And then, and then I think I said, I can't remember, I said something to her and then she said, shut up, you pig. And to which I turned around and I said, well, you look more like the colour of a pig than I do. <laughs> and it just, she just did not say anything after that. So I do agree with you. I think there comes a point in time where you have to decide to stand up for what you really, enough, when I say enough is enough, there's a point where you have to kind of put your head over that parapet and say, this can't go on anymore and actually be brave enough. And I do say brave because I understand that there's so many things riding on the decisions you make and I'm it's not easy you know there's other factors especially if you've got a family you know paying for a mortgage whatever it is whatever that that reason is holding you to do or not enabling you to do what you need to do I think then also does come a point in time where you have to make that decision for your own sanity and your own self-healing whether to stand up and say something because we can't keep changing jobs every time it doesn't work yeah because all we'll be doing it'll be keep changing jobs we have to come yeah. to a point where when you have to decide if something if this is worth standing up for and fighting for to do it and I think actually sometimes what we expect will happen the opposite happens where people will stop I agree as well in terms of that fear and in terms of kind of speaking out and what that then does I think education is so key that for people to start to kind of realize history and realize these what is happening I think sometimes when you speak out it can create that even if it's not in the in <laughs> the way that you want to see the change happening some change can can happen I guess but it's it's small gradual steps mm. yeah thank you for sharing that avril so we've spoken about some things black women can do uh, so building networks speaking up but i know some black women who have paid the price for speaking up they've essentially been bullied out of their organization and isolated so what can organizations do that doesn't require black women having to bear the burden of, of driving the change to make things different and to help black women when they're suffering and facing these microaggressions and, and racism in the workplace their progression is being stunted or stifled or they don't feel they can come to work and be themselves what can organizations do to support them so from my perspective i think the very first step is acknowledgement within the organisation to say, actually, we do have a problem and it is a problem. It's not just a thing that's happening. So I think from the leadership is really saying very clearly, starting with looking at the numbers, then looking at what's sitting behind those numbers. Why do we not have the right representation of black women within our organisation? So acknowledgement is the first piece. Then real understanding. I think we've talked about it before, but listening to really see, okay, uh, because not every black woman's the same, believe it or not. We all have different needs, different yeah. points of view. So really understanding the nuances around what is it that works for some black women? What is it that maybe presents itself as an obstacle in careers? So I think having some dedicated forums to actually make sure that points can be aired in, a, in an inclusive and accepting way 
But the, the problem, I think, is that many organisations have those, what ends up being really chats, you know, right. we sort of relive traumas and we say, this is what's happened. And then it really stops there. And, you know, there's some comms to say, great listening session. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. And it becomes very, the, the sort of outcome is almost is non-impactful because there's no real commitment and real drive. I think sort of putting a meager budget to your employee resource group or your Afro-Caribbean society or whatever, that's not enough. It's actually making sure that there's real accountability, genuine tracking of the metrics and calling out where people continue to go wrong um, in terms of whether it's the language they use and really embedding that within the culture. I just think that from what I've seen, I think it stops it stops short of where, where it needs to go in many businesses. There's no real drive beyond here's the comms that we're doing something. So thank you for that, Neka. What, what are your views on, on quotas? I personally feel that having a target is important. I, it's the same with everything in life, I feel. Having a clear objective, a smart objective, we all aim to work towards that, to have something measurable. I think that's the only way on a personal individual level and also to corporate level that things really get done. So having some clear targets Mm -hmm. is really important. And I know you asked specifically about quotas, but my view is actually targets are much more better, but they need to be ambitious targets, not just aiming to have the minimum, driving towards that target and having real accountability across the business in terms of everyone committing to that target and working towards that so that's my perspective on on numbers in terms of quotas i have never shied away from saying i think they are a brilliant idea because they force people to have to just think differently and when you look at the difference it made in scandinavia when they insisted on 50 50 women to men board representation suddenly they were able to recruiters and boards were able to go out and find these excellent women who have added enormous value to those companies if you have to go and look for something you then have to change what you've been doing before and for me quotas do not equal less than because there are a lot of people who have got onto boards because they went to school with somebody or were invited on who were totally mediocre and so the assumption that people that are there already got their own merit to me is the first false premise Mm -hmm. so you know if we take away the fact that those that are there didn't get their own merit then I think quotas are an excellent way to focus people's minds on finding talent that actually merits being on these in these situations. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue that needs to be tackled. Something you mentioned, Francis, around people essentially hiring their friends or giving promotions to their friends. Definitely one that I want everyone's views on. I'm going to come back to you again, Francis. Liz, I just wanted to hear from you. What are some solutions you think organisations can implement to address this? Thanks, Louise. I think firstly, it's important for organisations to create a safe space for people to talk and open up about their experiences. And this is a this is a combination of of listening, you know, creating opportunities for conversations where people can share their experience, but also empowering people and reminding them that it is important for them to share and open up about issues. That's the first thing from my perspective. And I think it's also important for organisations to set up sponsorship schemes and look at pairing very senior members of staffs with more junior BAME or Black staff members and ensure that or rather than people like me and yourselves having to work twice, three times as hard to get recognition and get visibility, there are few people just looking out for people that are minority are 
quite different and would struggle to get equal access to opportunities and everything everything else that their peers have access to. So I think it's really important for organisations to be deliberate about setting up those sponsorship opportunities and making sure that they are accessible. The third solution is, is actually offering coaching and mental health support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really I think it's really, really important to direct all of those resources towards black and, and ethnic minorities and ensure that it's not just covering mental health, but it's also providing practical guidance and support around how they can navigate the different issues that they might be encountering at work. I know and there kind of few of people have, have mentioned other ideas, but I think just similar to the point they made around quotas and targets, I think it's important for leadership to be held accountable. So every single leader, every single director should have it in their KPIs, their targets, their measures of success, an element of supporting diversity and fostering inclusiveness. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Liz. Francis, yeah. what, what solutions would you say to organisations to implement? You know, I, I feel that sometimes we need to shift the burden back. And by that, I mean there's almost, it's a bit like with women, isn't it? When women are supposed to be coached and encouraged to to progress, you know, we're trying to fix the victim and not the system. Mm -hmm. Because if the system doesn't get fixed, we can do all the work on ourselves that's necessary for any human being to progress, but the system won't let us. Mm. So what I'm hearing there is education. I, I agree. There is a lot of pushback. So the ideas that we've had from NECA and Liz have been fantastic, but there is a lot of pushback and resistance to those things even being implemented and to racial equality in the workplace even being a thing, right? We still hear, I don't see colour. You're imagining it. Yeah, and deny the experiences of black women. I'm curious to know from NECA, Francis and Liz, before I come to Emma and Avril, I'm curious to hear from you three how those things can be addressed because the success of that is important and it will drive the success of later interventions and solutions and ideas. And I think it's a hurdle. I was just on Twitter this morning and was looking at the tweet sent out by Edward Ininful, the black editor for Vogue magazine UK. And he said he was racially profiled. He was going into the office and the security guard told him the loading bay is over that way. So this is the editor of that publication being told to use the service entrance because clearly a black man could not be there in a senior position or even be there legitimately at all. And the interesting reactions on Twitter with so many, while many were in support, many were like, well, are you sure it's because you were black? Maybe it's the clothes you were wearing. You weren't wearing a suit. Maybe, you know, I've gone into the office before and told, where's your badge? You know, everybody just trying to deny the reality of this man's experience and to helpfully give him other interpretations of what he himself knows he suffered. And, you know, it, so it comes back to, yes, I, I've been very heartened to see CEOs issuing all these statements in recent weeks. But I think, you know, as we were hearing earlier, it's got to be tracked. It's got to be accountable. We've got to see, well, what difference did those statements make? You know, I wrote a piece on LinkedIn about hypocrisy in this area because it riles me. And I think we need to see the leadership give us something that we can look at six months from now and say, that was a direct result out of this statement. And until I see that, I really don't buy that this is in good faith. 
Here's the thing, and Mecca and Liz will be good to your perspective, mm. is you can have as many targets and KPIs as you want. If mm. you've not won over the hearts and minds of people, all it will do is drive the discrimination down. Further underground, yeah. So how can organizations, I'm not saying you have to have all the answers, right? I'm just getting your perspectives mm. on how the organizations can ensure that some of these great ideas you've you've shared around targets and coaching and support with mental health are actually effective and are genuinely implemented by leadership. Yeah, I think that was pretty much the why I started with acknowledgement because mm. I think actually when you look at it, there a lot of the statements that were issued really quickly for fear of people not having said the right things <laughs> at the right time. But actually to truly understand and ch- to acknowledge fully someone else's experience is a journey. It can't be done in a day. It can't be done in a month. It's a daily experience trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So for me, I think you're right. All of these things won't have a long lasting impact of any impact at all if we're not all on the same page. And I definitely don't have all the answers. I think that the educational part to get everyone on the same page is so important because what we're trying to do is Mm -hmm. for everyone is to unlearn all the prejudices that they've learned for decades. So that for me is the starting point. And I think alongside that is then setting the targets. I I think if those two are implemented with true intention Mm -hmm. and kept and monitored, then I think there is a chance for success because then everyone is on the journey together. But you can't force someone to change how they think. That's fundamentally the issue. So yeah, I don't have the answers, but I do think that those two elements, education, acknowledgement, alongside targets and monitoring of those can help us make some progress. Mm. And I think that's something that organisations will in the near future need to address in this process of change when a portion of the organization are on this journey towards inclusion what do they do with the resistors who are not coming along on that journey how do they address it especially because as you said Neka, you can't force people to do it mm. i see it right i see somewhat of a divided perspective those that are all for inclusion and those who are heavily resistant to it but might not say it out loud and so I think whilst they may have targets and quotas put in place that education bit is absolutely the foundation and very very important so I agree with that Francis and Neka. Okay I'm just going to come over to Avril and Amma so solutions for organizations what can they do? Well, I think most of what's been said, I definitely echo and agree with. I think the key thing that comes down to it is around accountability Mm. and the responsibility of where it lies for that change to really happen. And also what happens if it doesn't get done? You know, who, you know, who again is responsible for that? So I think, you know, what I was going to say has already been mentioned, but I'm thinking about where I am at the organization, the social enterprise I am at the moment. We have put out a very bold statement of intent and Coming back to the question around, you know, not wanting to exhaust the black women in organisations to want to actually be part of this. I have actually made a decision to be part of it because I think we also still need to be part of those conversations and the decisions that are being made. Because I think it's important that if we're creating change and we're creating it we need to ensure who we're creating it for is part of the conversation and is contributing in some way or another, rather than make decisions for people 
that you're not even including. But also when I'm saying that, that I'm part of it, I'm not leading it. It's still very much led with our CEO, our leadership and everybody else that is part of our essential team. But I think one of the things that we did, and when I say we, again, it was very much driven from the top for our CEO was if we're going to put something out there, we have to make ourselves accountable to the change that we're saying we're going to do. And through that, we need to hold ourselves accountable for the communities that we serve. So we're not just making bland statements and saying we're going to do this and not being held accountable by the people that we're servicing. So I think there's ultimately something there as well from an internal perspective. What companies need to think about is the internal groups in terms of black women, as we're talking about black women here, but if we're talking about generally in race and equality, what does that look like internally? But also, what does that look like to the customers and, and the community you're serving? Because ultimately, we can put all these things in place But to your point, if the hearts and minds aren't changed, but also if people don't see things changing at a pace that is justifiable, it's all just going to go to the side. And I think also bearing in mind people's well-being whilst we're going through this. So, you know, I think it's interesting that, yes, acknowledgement is the key thing, but I can acknowledge something and still ignore it. So again, how do we constantly, how are we constantly putting it to the forefront of people's minds so they know that it's not going to go away? How are we constantly making sure that behaviors will be, for want of a better word, penalized if they are not the right behaviors we're trying to set in the organization? What I have found, having worked through big corporates down to small startups and now to social enterprise, is it's much harder to do when you have a massive organization versus when you've got a smaller sized organization where you can actually start to really make some really tangible changes. Mm. So I'm not sure if I've answered the question fully, but I think for me, the solutions are very much around acknowledgement, are very much around um, putting targets or quotas in place. I think the interesting thing about quotas is everybody's like, oh, no, 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 because of the negative connotations associated Mm. with it. Quotas, to Francis' point, are not necessarily a bad thing depending on how you go about doing it and how you position it and the language and communication you use to talk about it. Mm. So for me, again, it comes back to debunking what you have put or placed in a negative way to making it a bit more positive. So yes, you need to measure things. The quotas target helps you set on track. But also I think the huge thing for me is if you don't hold people accountable, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there's a fine line between punishment and reward. Mm. In, in what we're doing in sense of making cultural change in workplaces. So there needs to be a good balance between the two. Because if you lead by punishment, I don't think that will work. But also I think if you lead by constant reward, I don't think that would work. So I think a fine balance between the two to be able to enable changes of behavior, because that's what it comes down to, the way you actually interact, the way you view people and the way you actually see them. It needs to be a fine balance between the two. And I think mental health definitely needs to be and well-being needs to be at the forefront of that mm. and understanding that everybody is going through it differently, irrespective of, to Neka's point, not every black woman goes through the same experience, mm-hmm. but ensuring yeah. that within the workplaces, you do have those safe places, but also, you know, we, we train mental health first aiders, but also making sure that those mental first aiders, that if you are going to train people around mental health awareness, that you have a diverse pool that are being trained as well as your managers so that they understand the implements and the impact mental health has mm-hmm. as well. Thank you so much, Amma. I'm just going to come to Avril before I ask the final question. So Avril, please, any thoughts around things organisations do? I agree with with the majority, with everything that's been said, really. I think that to pick up on Amma's point, that it is really important in terms of 
when you're implementing it communication I just think that like a lot of thinking and listening just needs to happen around these around anything that kind of goes into place but again like I would say having having like working groups or having kind of these positive supportive things that kind of encourage more black people um into like leadership roles into um into getting support at work I think is needed thank you so much everyone so accountability is a real common theme that's coming out here as is education I also noted down listening and just taking time to really understand and metrics to hold people accountable to and and possibly targets or quotas so fantastic thank you so much ladies on to the last question now which is how can black women best take care of their emotional and psychological and physical well-being and as you're sharing your perspectives please also if you have any resources so I know Neka you shared a couple of books that you have read if you have any resources at all that you want to direct or signpost anyone listening to this podcast episode two now is the time to do it as you're sharing your perspectives so yeah let's kick off with anyone that wants to start well I think for me some of the self-care stuff is very much you know taking time out to do the things you love you know the way that I sort of look after my own health and well-being is very much I love interior design so interior decor so I'm always thinking about things I can change up and switch up in our home you need to get the house app if you don't have it already oh thank you for that I will definitely look it up but um yeah no so I you know things around the house that it's so therapeutic to me so I do that I'm quite a creative being so I enjoy doing things like I've got a mindfulness coloring book so every from time to time I will pick that up and color that in love listening to music so again having you know and whether it's soulful jazz whatever is your flavor I tend to do I quite have eclectic taste so I tend to have a you know day where I'm just kind of just listening to that I mean music's constantly in our house anyway so going for walks cycling nice activities like you know exercising variety of things I also highly recommend therapy more than anything it's a great outlet and resource and a really good way to just be able to talk about and discuss things from a really non-judgmental perspective with somebody that isn't you know in your inner circle yeah so I think all of those things you know I think things that bring you joy but also things that make you curious so I'm quite a curious individual curious to learn so you know trying different things and trying something new you know I love dancing so just things that give you active kept you active but also spending time with loved ones you know making time to not be distracted with social media is a great thing so I have a me time which is you know I sat down from social media and again just either do things that I love or love to watch animation so I'm a big kid I love animation and cartoons so when I just want to not think about things and just have a laugh and joy that's stuff I do so I think for my my advice would be to yeah explore different things things that bring you joy you know if you're not an exercise fanatic just you know taking a gentle walk is great having music in your ears strolling around your neighborhood just getting to see and and just be present you know for those that work meditation different sort of stuff so I mean I mentioned I work for Mental Health First Aid England we have a plethora of resources on our website around self-care tips that you things that you can do so yeah I highly recommend looking at that and that that our website is mentalhealthengland.org and if you go to the resources section you'll have a plethora of things but there's again like I said there's lots of stuff on social media around self-care tips now especially more 
uh, than ever. I can't remember, but maybe I'll share it with you after Louise. There's quite a few people that I follow on social media for spe specifically that have some really great care, self-care tips and um, affirmations. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Emma. Liz? Yeah, thanks, Louise. So some of the things that I've practiced uh, and I still continue to practice are, you know, one, just finding outlets <laughs> and making sure that you have people that you can speak to, forums that you can go to to share and open up about your experience and, and seek guidance. And that's really, really important. I think it's also good to just choose choose your battles wisely because there are times when it's best for you to just walk away and there are times when it's actually worth fighting for and I think it's, it's important to be discerning of that and making sure that you you understand you define those non-negotiables right so if you're in an environment where there's constantly you're constantly experiencing a lot of microaggressions you've tried to seek sponsorship but you haven't been able to get any and there's no active effort from the organization or employer to support you then I think it's probably not worth staying around so I think it's important to, to choose choose the battles you fight very very carefully and I think it, it's it's important for you to also acknowledge the the fact that all of those experiences you know it does impact you and, and make sure that you're sort of seeking therapy, if that would help. You're looking for ways to help deconstruct some of those, you know, some of the impacts effectively. So, and I like what I think it was Avril or Amma that was sharing there about just painting or doing things that you enjoy, doing things that will completely take your mind off the situation or the environment. And I think, and that's why work-life balance is very, very important. I think making sure that you have a mix of, you know, work play versus life play. And you can always sort of flip or transition between the two to give yourself balance or transition from toxicity into something that's a lot more manageable for you. It's really, really important. Absolutely. That balance is so key. And I want to share off the back of what Liz just said, actually something called the ACE model, which sort of helps you identify and keep that balance. And the A stands for achieve, the C stands for connect, and the E stands for enjoy. So if you can try to balance your life with those three areas, that can be a helpful framework to follow. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Liz. Avril? Yeah, I think that what people have said it's really important I think just when it comes to work yes it's there to to provide money it's there to provide security but I think that that in terms of kind of thinking about taking care of the core of you is just is just key and so I think when you're finding yourself in those in those situations at work maybe where you can't kind of be yourself I think it's important to try and counter counteract that by making sure that you are creating spaces outside of that environment where you feel that you can fully be yourself so whatever form that might take lots of people have spoken about different things like meditation for some people for other people reading books I mean for me I feel like it's really important for me to have a routine so when I wake up in the morning I'll do some form of exercise to kind of put myself in a in a headspace where where I can kind of feel a bit calm before I start the day before I kind of have to launch into into a, an environment that that doesn't allow me to be in that kind of rest phase. So, but I think for everyone, it's individual. I think music's really important. I think sometimes I find empowerment in kind of reading about other people's stories, reading about history, um, just kind of reminding myself of other kind of strong people um, who 
of my ancestors who, who I can connect to has been really important for me in my journey. Obviously, yeah, things like therapy is really important. So there's a Black and Asian therapy network as well, who are like a really good resource just in terms of kind of they have lots of podcasts and, and different ideas speaking about difficulties that minorities face and, and speaking about what it means to be a Black person, thinking more about things around identity as well. And also it kind of has a list of different therapists that you can contact to who have some kind of cultural awareness. So yeah, I think just making sure that that you're feeling at your best really in whatever form that might take um, is really important. Thank you, Avril. And where you're able to support other black women as well, uh, be a source of encouragement where you can and where you have the power to be. Thank you so much, Francis. Yeah, I know. It's really, really powerful stuff you guys are saying. And it's so true. You know, as a novelist, I'd probably say it, but I just really think there's huge power in our stories. And, you know, sharing these stories and just even in this conversation today, being able to bring these things out because, you know, and the therapists on the call will know if it doesn't come out, it stays in. And if it stays in, it becomes toxic to us and for some people you know journaling can bring it out thinking and focusing on gratitude can bring it out because if we don't we you know and and coming back to one of the earlier points made about our personal health you know we eat our emotions and and so we we deal with all these issues where our bodies fluctuate because we're just trying to eat these emotions rather than bring them out deal with them get that support system to actually reflect them back but I think it's it's also important you know, just coming back to this whole structural thing that the more we can try and understand why and how we got here, why we're having to deal with this, I think the more it helps us also understand the limits of our own responsibility for the things that are happening to us, because I think sometimes we take on the burden of things happening to us as if somehow it's our fault. And I read a really interesting book last year, which isn't necessarily about black women, but it's about women in general. It's called Invisible Women. I don't know if any of you guys have read it. It's by a woman called Caroline Criado Perez. And It's a really readable book, which sets out the fact that society is set up for us as women to be invisible, never mind the layer of being a black woman, you know, and just practical things, things like the size of a a mobile phone has been designed for a man's hand size rather than a woman's, you know, things like seatbelts are designed with typical male size in mind rather than women. So our personal safety is at risk just because we're not thought about. When you go into a hospital and you have unexplained symptoms, it might well be a heart attack. But because physicians are trained to recognize the way it presents in a man, many times for women it's overlooked. And therefore we, again, are at risk and die needlessly. So when you realize that it's so much of this is systemic. It, it, I think, helps you to just get a bit more perspective and not blame yourself mm. for not being all you could be or all you think you should be. And, and really just, you know, it doesn't mean you give up, but it means that perhaps it just gives you a bit more perspective on what you can control and what is not within your control. And I know personally for me, I write and it's writing stories. It's creating worlds that I do control that allows me to explore these themes, whether it's identity, belonging, culture. You know, I do that through my storytelling. And and so, and we've heard so many different ways in which we all express our creativity. And I think the important thing is that we do just express, whether it's just talking to our girlfriends or whoever, but we need to get it out. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you, Francis. Thank you so much. Neka. Yeah, I think everything that everyone said is really important. And I probably have a mix of all of that. I definitely think 
a good walk has never done anyone any harm and I know a lot of my friends always say why do you always say just go for a walk but actually I do think that <laughs> there's some, a lot of um, a lot of good that can come from a healthy walk with some fresh air if possible. I think the most important thing is for everyone to understand themselves what motivates you what keeps you going what stresses you out what triggers you all of those things are really important and it's that self-knowledge and that's part of self-love I guess in terms of really understanding those aspects and then shaping your routine around that so as much as I do work long hours actually the variety of what I do actually keeps me energized so whether it's I do a lot of mentoring I do a lot of other things as a school governor as well so Yes, to someone else, that might seem like a lot of work in a day, but actually those things motivate me a lot and keep me inspired throughout. Mm -hmm. So I think really understanding those aspects. I think we might have mentioned sleep. I was terrible with sleep before I'd used to, you know, say, oh, I can survive on four hours each night, four hours sleep. And I think that's wrong. It's not something to be proud of, but it's something that I've started being a bit more intentional about, about when I actually go to sleep and trying to give myself a bit more sleep. I'm still not quite at the eight hour mark, but it's heading in the right direction. So I think that's also a really good time to decompress and re-energize as well. So that's the other thing. And I think one of the motivations for me and the startup space was to actually look at how we spend time outside in terms of sort of beauty and self-care and hair. So lots of people see like going to the spa as a therapeutic thing to do or to the salon. But our experiences previously were a bit more challenging in terms of Afro hair because actually being a black woman, whether it's in the workspace, actually in your sort of personal time, how do you have those more positive experiences? And so that's what one of the reasons that we set up Ninja Fro as well to have a platform basically where black women can find salons that actually understand their hair and they're not feeling in their personal time that they're having to deal with work, either inefficiencies or salons that don't really get them and get our needs. So there are lots of different ways, I think, in terms of self-care and how to manage that. But the most important thing is understanding yourself and creating that routine for yourself that suits you rather than trying to imitate lots of other people who are doing 20,000 things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you said starting with self-awareness and understanding what energizes you, what motivates you, and maybe what your stress triggers are is Mm. so important. And then absolutely molding your self-care regime around that uh, is really key. Thank you for that, Neka and everyone. So resources that we've had so far, Neka shared Lean In by Cheryl Sandberg. Francis has shared a book called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. And Emma has also shared some resources that you can find on MHFA England. Org, and they are 10 Keys to Happier Living, Address Your Stress, Five Ways to Wellbeing, Supporting Your Mental Health While Working from Home. So definitely encourage you to plug in to those things. NECA has also reminded me of Forget a Mentor, Find a Sponsor. And Francis has shared reconnectafrica.com for Black professionals. I believe Forget a Mental Find a Sponsor is by Sylvia Ann Hewlett. Am I right, Neka? Yes, that's, that's it. It's a great book. Just makes sure, uh, gives you some ideas in terms of how to actually identify a sponsor and the two-way relationship building. So I definitely recommend that. Fantastic. And in terms of Black and Asian therapists, Avril has 
mentioned the Black and Asian Therapy Network. And you can find out more at baatn.org.uk. So important to take care of our mental health. So don't shy away from seeking support from a therapist. That was actually a topic I wanted us to discuss, which we haven't had the chance to because there's just been so much rich conversation already. Maybe there'll need to be a part two about overcoming social obstacles that Black people face. Sorry, Louise, I just wanted to quickly jump in another good resource. Well, it's a new resource, but um, blackmindsmatteruk.com. They're also quite a good resource in terms of, again, finding therapists and just helping connect. And one of the things I actually forgot to say was around taking annual leave, because I actually literally wrote a blog about it yesterday Mm -hmm. in terms of how you support emotional well-being. And I think a lot of us aren't doing that because of the current situation and climate with COVID. And I think one of the great ways actually to also help just having that downtime is using your annual leave. Mm. and taking it and being productive and and proactive in taking it, which we don't do often enough. Thank you for that, Emma. So important. You don't have to tell me twice to take annual leave. Tell you that now. Okay, so how can people connect with you all? Let's start with Emma. How can people Oh um well I'm on LinkedIn. Emma are free for Chi. I'm probably most active there. I'm also on Instagram under the Inclusion Agilist. I'm on Twitter, but I kind of like, I'm a part-time Twitter. Yeah. But mainly, so yeah, either on LinkedIn, Amma Frifuchi, or on Instagram, the Inclusion Agilist, um, you can find me there. Awesome. Liz? So you can find me on LinkedIn, Elizabeth Ajayi, or on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Betty underscore Cook. Lovely. Frances? Again, on LinkedIn, Frances Mensa-Williams. On Insta, probably I'm doing more on there these days at Frances Mensa W and FrancesMensaWilliams.com. Lovely. Necker. Yes. Also on LinkedIn, Necker Oji. You'll find me there. I'm quite responsive there. I'm not as active on other platforms, but you can also find Ninja Fro online. If you just Google Ninja Fro, you'll find us there. Excellent initiative, by the way, everyone. Mm. I'm just about to plug Necker's. <laughs> Thank you. If you need hair resources, you need to find a great stylist. It's like the Amazon for Afro hair, if you like. You can go on there, see reviews, book appointments, get help, advice, insight into your natural hair. Brilliant. Avril? Yeah, so I'm not that active on, well, not very active at all on social media, just for my own mental health. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> but but you can find me on if you email me at hello at soulmindbody.space and I am on LinkedIn under Avril Gabriel. And she does massages everyone. So Yeah, and I also do massage. That's <laughs> another really nice thing for self-care, getting rid of tension and yeah. stress in your body. So massages <laughs> are definitely my top three. You can find me everyone as usual on LinkedIn. Instagram and Twitter. It's Louise Karinwi. You can also go to my website, louisekarinwi.com. And I had some documentaries I wanted to share. So I encourage you to watch The Old Corruption, Britain's Slave Trade, and also What Was Britain's Role in the Slave Trade. And they're two documentaries you can find on YouTube. And as Francis said, it's so important for us to understand the history and the context so we can take blame and shame off ourselves and understand there are wider forces at play that transcend us and go way beyond us. So everyone, thank you so much for such a rich conversation. We usually clap for people on this podcast, so there will be a sound of clapping.
Um, it's been fantastic speaking to you all. You've added so much insight. Thank you for your honesty, your transparency, your intelligence and your competence in in everything that you have shared today so appreciated and at the end of every podcast episode i share a quote and today's quote is short and sweet and it's by tracy ellis ross and i feel like it kind of encapsulates some of the themes you've been talking about today and it is it was when i realized i needed to stop trying to be somebody else and be myself i actually started to own accept and love what I had. So you can push past the burdens of negative stereotypes. Remember to take care of yourselves, everyone. Until next time, goodbye.